Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us again as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We're glad you joined us again for another session of Scripture Searching and Bible Study Together. We've been examining the topic that is certainly the most central of all ideas in Jesus' teaching, namely the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We're surprised that the kingdom idea does not get more discussion, more airing, and more press in Christian preaching in our own time. It is a well-known dictum of scholars, and this is something that any Bible reader can prove for himself or for herself easily, that the kingdom of God is the axis around which all of Jesus' teaching revolves. We've been saying, too, that the entire Bible is a kingdom book. The kingdom of God is the overarching theme of the whole of Scripture. It's the key idea, the idea that unlocks the drama, the unfolding drama, which the one God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is working out here on this earth for the benefit of our planet and for our benefit also as individuals. The plain fact of the matter is that Jesus came announcing the way to immortality, that great gift of immortality which God wants to give us as a loving Father. But remember that we do not have immortality innately. We were not born with it. Now, no doubt Adam and Eve could have attained immortality had they obeyed God. But as you know, a great disruption of God's original plan occurred in the early chapters of Genesis. As to say, the kingdom was founded on the earth in Adam and Eve. Adam was appointed as God's co-ruler, as God's vice-regent on the earth. The very first thing said about man is that he is to be in the image of God and to rule for God. Man was placed as a king in a paradise garden, and his job description is given us in Genesis 1, verse 26. It says there that God made man to rule over the earth. We find this also in Psalm 8, verse 6. There we find that God has made man little less than a god, as the New English Bible renders it, in that he made man to rule over all he had made. God put everything under his feet. That's what it means when it says that man was made in the image of God. That's a dynamic and active idea. Man is made to function for God. But the tragedy of our world is that as man has developed or become what we call civilized, more and more man has exploited the world and everything and every living creature that's in it, including his fellow man, and especially those fellow men who are less, as we say, civilized than he thinks he is. The phrase image of God has been lifted out of its biblical context and we've ended up making God in our image. What happens is that we pick out a human characteristic which we approve of and we then say that that is what God must be like. That's the exact reversal of what we really should be doing. Bible study enables us to find out what God is really like and what we are to do in response to him. Now Jesus came preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God. A wonderful verse in Luke 4.43 tells us that the whole purpose of Jesus' mission was to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And in using that term kingdom of God, he meant a time coming when God is going to restore to the earth that paradise condition which was lost when Adam and Eve failed to obey God. The kingdom of God was the great national hope of Israel. All the prophets had spoken about it. The psalmist had sung about it. The Jewish people had looked forward to the time coming when they would be God's agents and servants in a new world with the Messiah ruling in the way that had been intended for Adam, for mankind from the very start. So the Bible then is the story of how God is restoring kingship to this earth, how he's restoring his presence to this earth, and he's doing it now through those whom he invites, through the gospel of the kingdom, to take part as co-rulers with Messiah in that future era of the kingdom of God on this earth. We suggest that if you take that, as a basic premise, as a hypothesis, if you like. Test it and see if that doesn't make sense of page after page of your Bible, both the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament itself. The story of the kingdom of God, as it develops and unfolds, provides a backbone to the whole of Scripture. So with that as an introduction, let me show you a framework for the kingdom idea from the Hebrew Bible itself. I've mentioned already that the Jews customarily interpreted or commented on certain passages of the Bible by saying that a given passage meant the kingdom of God is going to be revealed. Now, one such passage is found in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 18. We have the statement there, The Lord will reign forever and ever. I wonder if that reminds you of a classic passage in our New Testament. Well, if you know your Bible well, you will be hearing there echoes of a New Testament passage in Revelation 11, verse 15. Now, this marvelous verse, which is an anchor verse for any solid understanding of the Bible, we read that at the seventh trumpet in the future, the kingdom of the world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, I'm sure you hear the parallel in that verse in Revelation 11:15, and its counterpart in Exodus 15, verse 18. In fact, those are the only two verses in the Bible which specifically say, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Those two verses interlock. They should be put together like pieces in a puzzle. You see, the Old Testament is not just history. This is what makes it so relevant to us. It is history, but it's also prophecy. Events of the Old Testament are going to repeat themselves in the future. There's a repetition pattern in history. You know the old saying that history repeats itself. That is absolutely true as far as the Bible is concerned. Let me show you how this works now. In Exodus 15, verse 17, we read, God is going to bring Israel and plant them in the mountain of his inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And then we read, as we just mentioned, the Lord will reign forever and ever. I want you to get hold of the key ideas in this central passage about the kingdom of God in Exodus 15, verses 17 and 18. You notice that God is going to bring his people and plant them in the mountain of his inheritance. The key word inheritance 
Here we think immediately of inheriting the kingdom of God in the New Testament. It's called a place which God has made for his own dwelling. The sanctuary which God's hands have established. And then we speak of God reigning. The kingdom of God will be revealed. That's the way the Jewish people commented on that verse. And we see then what is meant by the kingdom of God. Remember that the kingdom of God is the term we're investigating because it's the favorite topic of Jesus and the heart of his gospel and therefore the heart of the Christian faith. So we read then in the Old Testament of a time when God in fact delivered his people, was beginning to deliver his people by bringing them into the inheritance in Canaan under the supervision, of course, of Moses and Joshua. At that point then the kingdom of God was in some sense established. But you know the story of the Israelite failure to maintain their role as God's kings and queens, as God's vice-regents. And so they were eventually expelled from the land. But the Jews and the Bible, which inspired them, never gave up hope for the ultimate establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. That's why then Jesus came announcing the kingdom. He proposed himself as the new Joshua, as the one who would lead the people of God, that is, you and me as Christian believers, into the promised earth of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're going to inherit the earth. That's the place that God is going to bring the Christians to eventually. It's a place and an inheritance to be found on this earth when Jesus returns. And so you see that Exodus chapter 15 verses 17 and 18 is a, gives us a picture of an event which is not only history, something that happened many years before the birth of Christ, but it contains within it, if we unpack it carefully, a precious jewel in regard to what's going to happen in the future. It's a prediction about what God intends to do yet on this planet, namely establish his kingdom through Jesus Christ when he returns. Now let me show you another example of how history is going to repeat itself. You remember in Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, we read that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now did you know that that same event is going to repeat itself? at a time future to us? If you turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, and verse 15, we find this extraordinary prophecy. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, that's to say the Red Sea, and he will wave his hand over the river, that's the river Euphrates, with his scorching wind, and the Lord will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod and there will be a highway from Assyria that's the country that we would now perhaps call Iraq for the remnant of his people who will be left just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt you notice the phrase just as there you see the comparison then between what happened at the time when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and what God is going to do in the future by bringing his people from the area of Egypt and from Iraq 
into the promised land, and that will indeed be the initiation of the kingdom of God as all the prophets predicted it. So you see there's going to be a second exodus, a future exodus of God's people from the area outside Palestine in the immediate uh, vicinity in Iraq and Egypt, an event which is going to be modeled and patterned after the exodus experienced by the children of Israel at the time when Moses brought them safely out of the reach of Pharaoh of Egypt. It's not surprising then that in Revelation chapter 15 we see the people of God, the elect, singing a song which is called the Song of Moses. And they're singing not only that song, but the song of the Lamb. Of course, the Lamb is Jesus. But recognizing then that there is a repeated pattern of one exodus in the time of Moses and another at the return of Jesus, it makes perfect sense that those who come off victorious from the beast, as we read in chapter 15, verse 2 of Revelation, will be singing the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. A wonderful unity emerges in the Bible when we begin to put these kingdom texts together. Exodus 15 verse 18 looks forward to the everlasting reign of God, and that kingdom of God is established in the future when the seventh trumpet sounds, as we find in Revelation 11 verse 15. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to join us again as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the kingdom of God.